I invite you to uh, turn in your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 1, if you would. And in the short time we have together this morning, we're going to learn how to handle misunderstandings. And I wish I could take the time today to ask each of you if you are going through a period in your life right now of being misunderstood, of having your actions questioned, uh, of having your motives misjudged, your words misinterpreted, and your timing dismissed? Are you experiencing right now something uh, you meant to be taken one way, but others are seeing it in a different light? Well, welcome to my world. I just finished a sermon series called Courageous Christianity, where we spoke about the very sensitive issue of race in our culture from a biblical point of view. And as a result, some people outside of a church have questioned my motives. Some have even accused me of being a Marxist or of teaching Marxist. Some have mailed me some really weird literature. Some have admitted to having quit listening online because they didn't hear what they wanted to hear. A few stopped coming to church and some even walked out of services. And some have also wanted to clearly tell me what they felt that I didn't cover and should have covered in that sermon series. Now in this process, I found myself asking people if they took in all of the messages because they definitely would need to hear them all. And the only standalone message of the entire series was the very first one on May 23rd. All the rest were tied together. And interestingly, when I asked people in their criticisms if they had listened to all the messages, to the person they admitted that they hadn't. But nonetheless, they were still very confident in their opinions. Now, being misunderstood is a fact of life, especially if you are a person in any kind of leadership role. Well, the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians is embroiled in one such misunderstanding with some of the people from the church at Corinth. And in this controversy, he models for us how to stand up for ourselves in a godly way when our integrity and character are under attack. He teaches us that when we are being misunderstood, we need a God-given defense. And what does a God-given defense look like? First of all, he shows us that it makes a real effort to clear up the misunderstanding. See, Paul wrote numerous letters to the church at Corinth. Some scholars believe that he wrote as many as four letters, but we have two of them that God has inspired and placed in the Word of God. Plus, when studying epistles, you only have some of the conversation uh, as we are not hearing from the other party. The analogy is of listening to someone in your presence talking on the telephone. You hear what they're saying, but you don't hear what the party on the other end of the line is saying back to you. Well, what we see Paul doing here is going to great lengths to try to straighten out this matter, to try to clear up this misunderstanding. And he begins in verse 12, now this is our boast. And boy, does that seem awkward at first. It's like boasting. He begins his defense with boasting about himself and Silas and, and Titus and Timothy. It's like, what do we, you know, that, that doesn't seem to make sense to us. You know, what, what do we not see right away is the steps, though, that Paul and others have previously taken so that they can now boast. Now, boasting to us does seem worldly. It seems bragging about oneself, yet it can also be 
a sign of confidence. And the apostle in this letter actually uses the word for boast 29 times. And in this epistle, he does this, but depending upon the context, it can mean one of two things. First, negatively, which is what we tend to think of with boasting, is referring to unwarranted self-confidence based upon your own merit, your own achievements in life. Positively, though, boasting can denote a legitimate confidence based upon what God has done and what God enables a person to do. Now, as a Christian, when we, misunder- we are misunderstood or we're misjudged by someone, the first thing we need to do is some self-introspection. We need to look at ourselves. Have I done something wrong here? Is there anything about what I've done that God condemns? Does my conscience, which as a human being is our highest standard of moral reasoning left to ourselves, does my conscience bother me about any of this? Maybe, Maybe we were justified in some parts of our actions, but maybe others were wrong. Perhaps you lost your temper, or maybe you were cruel or said some unkind things. Maybe you retaliated against someone, or you were just insensitive, and you acted out of ignorance and unknowingly harmed someone. If your conscience bothers you, then God's Word teaches us to confess it to God, also to admit our wrongdoing to those we've offended, and to go ahead and ask for forgiveness. Well, folks, a lot of conflict in this world continues and continues to exist because some people are unwilling to clear their consciences at the very beginning. Verse 12, now this is our boast. Our conscience testifies that we have conducted ourselves in the world and especially in our relations with you with integrity and godly sincerity. We have done so relying not on worldly wisdom, but on God's grace. We have a complete, clear conscience. In all of our dealings with you, in all of our dealings in this world, uh, we, uh, we have nothing to hide here. Verses 13 and 14. For we do not write you anything you cannot read or understand, and I hope that as you have understood us in part, you will come to understand fully that you can boast of us just as we will boast of you in the day of the Lord Jesus. We're looking forward to the day of Christ to celebrate and boast about you, and we're trusting you'll do the same for us, but we have spoken plainly to you. We've been straight shooters this whole time. There's been no hidden agenda, just you know, clear, unvarnished truth. Then in verses 15 through 17, he drills down now on the misunderstanding. Let me read that text for you. Because I was confident of this, I wanted to visit you first so that you might benefit twice. I wanted to visit you on my way to Macedonia and to come back to you from Macedonia. And then to have you send me on my way to Judea. Was I fickle about when I intended to do this? Or do I make my plans in a worldly manner so that in the same breath I say both yes and yes and no and no? The problem is that Paul changed his plans here. Originally, Paul was living at the time in Ephesus and he was planning to cross the Aegean Sea over to Corinth, visit the Corinthians for a while, help them with some of their work and their problems in the church. And then from there, he was going to go through northern Greece to Macedonia, to the cities of Thessalonica and Philippi, where he had previously planted churches. He was then going to come back to Corinth giving them what he said in verse 15, this double benefit, 
twice visiting them. And Paul was then looking for the Corinthians to assist him in finding a ship from Corinth to Jerusalem where he could find passage and with the help of others to bring the love offering uh, to those who were famished and starving in the, in the regions there in Jerusalem and surrounding that region in, in Israel. And uh, this was plan A, which did not happen. Now, if you have your Bibles open, flip back with me to chapter 16 of 1 Corinthians. Let me read for you verses 1 through 9. Now about the collection for the Lord's people. Do what I told the Galatian churches to do. On the first day of every week, each one of you should set aside a sum of money in keeping with your income, saving it up so that when I come, no collections will have to be made. Then when I arrive, I will give letters of introduction to the men you approve and send them with your gifts to Jerusalem. If it seems advisable for me to go also, they will accompany me. Now, he's not certain he's going to go, but if it's advisable, if it's the right time, if it's appropriate, if it's safe, whatever, if it's advisable, then I will go along. Verse 5, after I go through Macedonia, I will come to you. For I will be going through Macedonia. Perhaps I will stay with you for a while or even spend the winter so that you can help me on my journey. Wherever I go, for, and, and again, wherever I go, not sure where I'll end up, but wherever I go. For I do not want to see you now and make only a passing visit. I hope to spend some time with you if the Lord permits. Again, if God wills this. But I will stay on at Ephesus until Pentecost because a great door for effective work has been opened to me and there are many who are opposed to me. Now to us this seems kind of juvenile for them to be upset that, that Paul changed his plans, especially because he was an apostle and called to so many places to help uh, start churches and advance the gospel of Jesus Christ. After all, too, when you think about it, transportation back then was difficult and it was uncertain. So was communication. It was even, frankly, I think communication would have been even worse. So how does Paul even let them know in some kind of timely manner of his change of plans? And verse 17 there shows their level of frustration with the Apostle Paul. And it's believed that Titus must have been the one to bring back word to Paul of their accusations, of him being fickle, of him being changeable and unreliable, that he was living in a worldly manner just like the average non-believer. Now, isn't it remarkable that these letters from 2,000 years ago find such application in our lives today. Just this last week, a very close friend of mine told me of a family member who couldn't come home for the 4th of July because another relative of theirs was going to be traveling through the area and needed some assistance from, from them, and not only from them, but also from others. Uh, so this person not only had to change their plans and stay home on the 4th, but had to enlist others to help them out, which put their 4th of July uh, activities on hold as well. Well, it turned out at the last minute that this family that was traveling through changed plans. And the very day they're supposed to arrive at 5 o'clock in the morning, a text is received that we went a different route and we're not coming your way at all. Talk about a frustrating experience. Putting your life on hold to help somebody else out 
and then they don't show up at all. This is how worldly people act in showing no regard for other people's time and efforts and, and what they put into this. Well, the Apostle Paul here is going all out to clear up any misunderstanding about his travel itinerary. And this is also precisely what we need to do in circumstances in life where we are being misunderstood. Try to do everything we can to clear up the misunderstanding. This is step one of a God-given defense. Step two of this defense is one that is based upon the trustworthiness of God. Because he comes to the end of verse 17 there in chapter one, and he says, I say, you know, or do I make my plans in a worldly manner? So that in the same breath, I say both yes, yes, and no, no. I didn't say yes and no at the same time. I wasn't speaking out of both sides of my mouth. I wasn't saying what you wanted to hear because I knew that's what you would want to hear, but then I'm going to go off and do my own thing anyway. And yes, Paul knew. He was familiar with the teaching of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5, 37, where your yes needs to be yes and your no needs to be no. And he was familiar with James because that's the first epistle written. You know, the Apostle James, Jesus' brother, who said, don't go around swearing all kinds of oaths. All you need to do is say a simple yes or a simple no. Paul knew those things. And basically, Paul is saying here that no Christian can give a yes and no commitment at the same time. This would be contrary to the Christian faith. Now we come to verse 18 and 19. But as surely as God is faithful... Our message to you is not yes and no. For the Son of God, Jesus Christ, who was preached among you by us, by me and Silas and Timothy, was not yes and no, but in him it has always been yes. See, God never says yes, but really means no. God does not say yes and then takes back his yes. When God says no, God means no. And that's how that gospel came to be proclaimed to you. And then, of course, verse 20, for no matter how many promises God has made, they are yes in Christ. And so through him the amen is spoken by us to the glory of God. There are multiple hundreds of promises in the Old Testament concerning the Messianic age, and every single one of them has, not a single one of them has failed to find fulfillment in Jesus. There have been no changes in God's promises about Christ. There are all yes. There's no taking them back. And amen here uh, is uh, what we say, it, it is what we say. Because notice it says to us here that these promises, they are yes in Christ. And so through him, the amen, that's through Jesus, the amen is spoken to the glory of God. The amen there is actually a transliterated word from the Hebrew language, uh, which means to establish or to confirm. And during Old Testament times, Jews would declare uh, amen regularly in response to the truth or in response to a prayer or in response to things that they agreed with. Amen? Amen. They would agree, and that's when they would say it. Well, this the apostle is saying here that the gospel we preach to you was from God a yes 
And we say amen to that. We agree with what God, the God who doesn't change his promises, who is yes or no, that God is the one who has given this gospel. And we say amen to this to the glory of God. Now verses 21 and 22. Now it is God who makes both us and you stand firm in Christ. He anointed us, set a seal of ownership on us, and put his spirit in our hearts as a deposit guaranteeing what is to come. God is the source of all of this. Remember verse 18, it said that God is faithful. God's trustworthy. God is the one who can be counted upon. And the phrase there to establish is a legal term, meaning a guarantee, like a contract that's been signed, a commitment that something is going to be carried out. It's going to confirm it. It's going to verify it. And, and it's going to prove that this is true. And God says that we're anointed, that we've been commissioned, and he's given his seal of ownership upon us. You know, in the ancient documents, like in the Roman Empire, Caesar would put his seal on his communications, would be a wax drop, and the signet ring would be there, and it meant that no one would dare uh, to tamper with it, or that no one could open it until it reached, reached its intended party. The signet ring also verified the veracity of the communication. Now, many products in our culture right now are sealed so that they are protected from spoiling. They're sealed so that they can extend shelf life, and they're sealed to make sure that they've not been tampered with. Some of you that are a little older like me can remember back five decades ago or so where Tylenol bottles got infiltrated with some poison pills, and people died from that. You ever wonder why you get all kinds of products now and they've got so much sealing on them that you got to get your kids to open them for you. You can't pop the labels, you know, and all this stuff, and you, you got double seals on them. That's so you know that it hasn't been tampered with. That's so you know that it's safe for you to, well, we've been sealed by God in the Holy Spirit when we're in Christ Jesus. And Ephesians 1.13 is one of the many texts that speaks of God's sealing of the believer. And it says, and you also were included in Christ. When you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, when you believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, which be, again was a deposit guaranteeing what is to come. So you need to understand that God is the one who has brought all of this to be, guaranteeing what is to come. Thus, God is trustworthy. And that's what the apostle is saying. The gospel came to you in this way, and even if my plans have had to change, it's because God is the one who's changed all that. And God is the one who needs to be our defense when our integrity is questioned. We need to rely on the trustworthiness of God, how God has been leading us in our lives. Now, step three in the defense here is that we're to love deeply those who question our integrity. Verses 23 and 24. I call God as my witness. And I stake my life on it, that it was in order to spare you that I did not return to Corinth. Not that we lord it over your faith, but we work with you for your joy, because it is by faith that you stand firm. The God who is trustworthy is the one the apostle says that I'm going to call as my witness, which is, that's dangerous, because if you're not telling the truth, you're in trouble. But obviously saying, I'm telling the truth. So I'm, I'm having God as my witness, and I'd also stake my life on what I'm telling you. Now remember, this apostle had already sent a strong letter in the past, and he had visited them once already and lowered the boom. And he didn't really want to have to do it again. 
And he says, not that we're lording it over you. Now, I ask you a question today. What's the difference between lordship and leadership? What's the difference between the two? The apostle Peter commented on that in 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 1 through 3, where to the elders among you I appeal as a fellow elder and a witness of Christ's suffering, who also will share in the glory to be revealed. Here's what he says. Be shepherds of God's flock that is under your care, watching over them, not because you must, but because you are willing, as God wants you to be, not pursuing dishonest gain, but eager to serve, not lording it over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. Lordship in this context is not having to be in charge, not having to micromanage everything. Pastors do need to lead in the church but they're never intended to be the church's boss. Pastors are never intended to have all the say or the only say in the church. I have a brother-in-law who's a pastor, and he's nearing the last quadrant of ministry years in his life. And he's been on a quest these last two years to uh, find a new pastoral call. And it's been difficult for someone who's nearing 50 years of age and then add in the whole COVID shutdown thing where churches weren't sure if they were going to hire or kind of waiting to see what happened. Well, he's just accepted a new call and he starts that new position in the middle of August. But prior to this, another church was courting him and they showed a lot of interest in him and he was very interested in living in that area because it would put him closer to a number of family members and he, he was hoping everything would line up. But then he began to realize in that process that the lead pastor of their church micromanaged everything. And as much as he wanted this new call, as much as he liked its location, he backed away because he'd already experienced in his very first call to ministry when he was a young pastor, he'd already experienced a pastor who was very controlling. And he wanted no part of that lording it over him for his future and for his family's future. Well, the Apostle Paul says here, our goal wasn't to lord it over you. No, we wanted to work with you in this. Your joy is actually our joy. And Paul had already caused them pain by his letters and his first visit. And it would, it, if that would do the work, then there's no need for him to add more to it. There's no need for the extra visit. Now, Paul, under the direction of the Holy Spirit, is really being a skillful surgeon here, if you will. He is going to cause some pain, and he has caused some pain in Corinth, but he's needing to cut people a little bit, but only cutting as much as needed to be cut. You know, 14 months ago when I had my brain surgery, uh, I was told that to remove the tumor in my temporal lobe here, they'd only need to make a two to three inch cut, and they would try to follow a little bit of my hairline, but obviously when they got a little higher up, there's no hairline to follow there. But when I came out of surgery and recovery, was I shocked to find out that they'd cut my whole skull open. A full nine-inch cut across my forehead and right temple area. And the very first thing that surgeon told me was that they had not only taken the tumor out, but when they went in there, they found an AVM, 
along with the tumor, an arterial vascular malformation. And that's what was actually causing me all of my problems. And so they needed to open it up to have more room to work, to put in aneurysm clips, to cauterize the veins that were leaking and causing the stroke-like symptoms in my body, and then to put a titanium plate up in there to sort of have an access panel if they have to go back in and, uh, and work on that again in the future. Uh, he said to me that we cut as much as we had to cut. That's what Paul has done. And he's saying here, we, we, yes, I know I caused some pain here, but, but I'm believing it's bringing about God's intended result. Look at chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. So I made up my mind that I would not make another painful visit to you. For if I grieve you, who is left to make me glad? But you whom I have grieved. I wrote as I did so that when I came, I would not be distressed by those who should have made me rejoice. I had confidence in you, in all of you, that you would share my joy. For I wrote you out of great distress and anguish of heart and with many tears, not to grieve you, but to let you know the depth of my love for you. He's saying, I've already caused you so much pain. And the Holy Spirit has showed me that if I come again, it's only going to add to this pain. So why would I come again and cause more pain? And please know that what I have done was with no desire to hurt anybody, but out of a heart of love. What we have in this passage is a marvelous picture of how to handle misunderstanding. It should never be to hurt in return or to retaliate in some way because someone has misjudged or misunderstood us. We should always explain as simply and clearly and truthfully as needs to be and, and needs to be said, but without any intention of hurting someone else. When we do have to inflict pain, we also need to keep it to a minimum. All the while, offering our love and concern for those who are involved. And yes, there will be times in life when we will be misunderstood. And as a result, we need to mount a godly defense. And such a defense will make this all-out effort to clear up the misunderstanding while basing this effort upon the trustworthiness of God. And, and while by God's grace, loving deeply those who will question our integrity. Let's pray together. God, today we thank you again for this journey through 2 Corinthians that we're on, this series called Second Wind where we need to catch our breath a little bit, Lord. And we see the Apostle Paul modeling along with Titus and, and uh, Silas and Timothy how to handle misunderstandings, how to handle conflict. And I pray for that for us today, Lord. We live in a world that's embroiled in conflict right now. Our culture's embroiled in conflict. And Lord, we need to follow these steps of clearly communicating any misunderstandings that are out there, humbly looking at ourselves first, and then, Lord, trusting you and your trustworthiness and your leading in our lives, even if it means people don't like to hear what we have to say, but doing it out of love. Oh, God, I pray for your people to be like that. And I pray for the church to lead the way in healing in this culture and as the gospel continues to advance for the glory of God. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.